Welcome to the journey with Mpo Podcast, a sacred space for healing, love, and rediscovering your life purpose. Introducing your host, Mpo. last week's episode but checked in on me. I appreciate and adore you guys incredibly. This episode is proudly brought to you by Sprig and Motar, Ashley's company. In the studio with us today is, well as you know, Ashley Naganishi. <laughs> Our first ever female feature. She is going to blow your mind, put it back together differently and serenade it. I present to you, Ashley. A single parent. A noun that derives from the singular word of mother and father. A plural blend of sexual orientation and conjunctive ways of fostering a child. I would like to think I am a good mother. For each heartbreak and break of laughter, for the all-nighters waiting for fevers to break or crying to stop. For knowing her body parts in three different languages and counting to 15 at 21 months for saving for hula and music lessons when I couldn't seem to keep a financial rhythm going because of five fishes named Color, a fat cat named Max, and a dog that falls asleep before he ever does a trick. For every time I've had to listen to Barney's I love you, you love me, I swear if it wasn't so heavenly to the music box of my daughter's eardrums, I would demask him live so they'd finally discontinue his show. For each night spent preparing for tomorrow's to come, my strict rules and pushing curfews to indulge in a late night hot cocoa and movie or two. For the late car rides, sing-along songs, circle time, and not having to swallow my pride to do the chicken dance in the hospital just to make my baby smile. I'm not the best father. For the times of frustration or having the audacity to argue with a child. The inability to keep you on a proper schedule, the late night ice creams, or the times I've used TV or the street lights from car rides to rock my child to sleep, for thinking I didn't want you to be treated how we were as children, believing that I couldn't rewrite my history to be a better parent, for every time I thought work or school needed my attention before you did, I promise it was always for you, that when I came home upset, it's almost never you but the world I was mad at, upset that I couldn't get more time with you, and even when I did, when it came to stack bills and blues, I couldn't appreciate the time even though I really wanted to. I am a single parent. A noun must derive from the singular word of mother and father. A plural blend of sexual orientation and conjunctive ways of fostering a child who has learned that being a good parent is knowing how to say no and mean it. That punishment doesn't mean beatings. Understanding that apologies are never too late and forgiveness should be held out like holiday candies. I would like to think I'm a good parent because you have a contagious smile that affects others instantaneously. For every time she said, excuse me, Thank you, or I love you to a stranger for every time we have prayed together, laughed together, and told a story between the fingertips of mother and daughter because I love her. Not just because she is mine, but because she is amazing. 
And I'd like to think I had something to do with that. I'm like, ooh. Thank you for taking the time to mic it out with me. Thank you. I'm like, oh my God, dinner was amazing. The space is amazing. I'm just excited to be here. I'm like, ooh, the honor. Like, first female feature. I'm like, ooh, la la. God, that means so much because I put on this weight. <laughs> My pregnancy has not felt so sexy, so thank you. I'm like, the same goes for you, though. So this, I've been admiring your show from afar, so this has been very nice. I'm like, oh my god, I get to be on this. <laughs> it's nice to have you. Let's start with a wet your feet question. I know so much about you, and yet so little. Okinawan, I guess? Who is Ashley? Where were you born? What stars exploded when you were born? So, I am from Okinawa, Chitan, Naha. And, wow, I'm actually very proud to say that. Uh, so, yes, Okinawan is, is a really big thing. So you always know when someone's Okinawan, because you'll be like, oh, so you're Japanese. I'm like, no, 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 I'm Okinawan. <laughs> uh, I am one of those people. I was raised by generations of women that are very strong, proud Okinawans. Mm -hmm. uh, we spoke a little bit once before, and I told you that my grandmother only spoke in Uchinoguchi, which is our native tongue. Yeah, yeah. Refused to speak Japanese, refused to speak English. She said those are imperialist languages and <laughs> didn't believe in it. Uh, wow, so who is Ashley? That is still something I feel like is always changing. Okay. I feel like I'm still in the process of becoming all the mm -hmm. time. And that's... That's a journey I've quite enjoyed, actually, mm -hmm. to see how how everything has changed and in all the years that I've been alive. My grandmother, I was born under the moon, uh, which mm -hmm. a full moon, which my mother and grandmother agree is basically to be birthed from the womb of the moon mm -hmm. and to mm -hmm. and basically carrying so much water with you. That is, and water is not always a good thing. <laughs> my name itself comes from the legacy of one who walks the path of sorrow until they reached the road to enlightenment. That was a name, I was like, what in the hell? Why would you give me that? Who destines their child to live this way? But actually, it, it really worked. I think it's something that's changed my life for the better, and mm -hmm. those struggles allowed me to be a very compassionate person, to be a person mm -hmm. that sees the world in a different lens, mm -hmm. and to also uphold the legacy that was my grandmother and was mm -hmm. my grandmother's before her. Uh, the women in our family are very powerful in more ways than one. I can imagine. Yeah. So uh, from war survivors to shamans to healers, we've been very re uh, prevalent in Okinawan culture. Tell me a little bit about your meme addiction and how it all started. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a great question. Oh, uh, my meme addiction. I do have a plethora of memes in my pocket at all times. Uh <laughs> So my meme addiction started with, well, depression, um, Hello. <laughs> which, you know, I, I love to laugh, actually. It's not just depression. I just love to laugh. And, mm -hmm. and memes are one of those things that it's just, 
it's I feel like they're universal and that people all can relate to it and it kind of highlights our darker tendencies too like our little like small sides that we're like low-key ashamed of but not yeah. really we're like I wish people knew this but I can't say this outrightly so I'm gonna just post this picture you know and, so, and like that's pretty much like my memes are life uh I really yes. love uh yes as you know that's pretty much my whole thing people are like Ash like you have this social media stuff you really suck at it. And I was like, I do. I, I'm really not good at Instagram or Facebook, but because I use them all for memes. I don't really like, I don't promote myself. I hardly promote my businesses. I'm like very terrible about it. But memes, I'm on that constantly. Like I'm constantly looking for things to laugh at. And, I like uh, steal someone your profile. I'm like, oh, Ashley's got some good memes. I'm gonna- <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I know. I like yours too. I see yours pop up because like I, I post so many dirty, horrible, you know, like dark, sarcastic, sardonic things i see yours just like uplifting wildly energetic and i'm like oh yeah i'm like oh also you could be this pretty flower and this dark satanic princess at the same time like there's nothing wrong with that it's fine like why can't she be this gangster ass thug and also this like nice kind teacher like you could do both uh like because people are complex right like yes and at the end of the day, we kind of have this way of compartmentalizing our identities. Okay. And I think that it's, it proves a lot in social media, right? Like, mm. we're like this different person. We're like, oh my God, guys, I'm like so happy and life is going so well. And then really, they're just like super depressed, like chilling in the corner of their house, mm. not talking to anybody, haven't paid mm. their bills, haven't shaved. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, pretty much. And so, right, you know? And then uh, I'm kind of very upfront about things. I'm like, mm. oh, dude, like if I'm feeling like shit, I pretty much post a bunch of memes. Like, that's how yeah. you can tell I'm really sad is I just kind of mean blast and there is this hilarious time where my friend was like Ashley you post so many memes like it's so they're so funny I was like yeah dude I only post memes when I get super depressed and she's like but you're always posting memes and I was like right (laughs) (laughs) and it was just this hilarious awkward moment that I got to accomplish that I was always wanting to (laughs) it's so messed up I felt so bad for her because I knew she was like oh no like why did I ask that question But no, yes, I do. Yes, I am obsessed with memes. Uh, And that's pretty much how it started. And now I just, I love looking for them and finding out people that might need them that day. Mm. You know, so if I see something funny or I see something wise and I'll be like, huh. And I let it sit with me. I'm like, who does this remind me of? I feel like, ah, or someone needs to hear this. And I just kind of send it to them. And then, so like with you, you're like, I needed to read this today. And I was like, yeah, I had a feeling. Like I had a feeling you needed that. Like, so yeah, I know it's, it's like a low key gift. It's like a, you know, like a a dark gift. (laughs) I love it. It definitely makes my day. I do. I I always have like notifications and I know, oh, I've been tagged in memes. (laughs) That's my goal. (laughs) When did you start writing poetry and then eventually performing? Ah, poetry. So I first started writing poetry in class. We just moved to America and I didn't know English yet, actually. So it actually took me some time. But for English, it was like one of those things in like grade school, right? Like you write poems during Mother's Day or whatever, Mm -hmm. and you explore different cultures and stuff. And I was always very quiet about my poetry. I didn't really discover my voice until I was in my preteens probably and I would always be writing I was always writing I was very much a loner uh growing up or kind of like a floater Mm. like I was like a social butterfly so I'd hang out people for like 10 minutes and then another people for 10 minutes (laughs) I kind of float everywhere but I was mostly in the library or somewhere by myself 
I didn't really enjoy people's company too much. And to be honest, it makes a lot of sense knowing what I know now, why yeah. I couldn't be around people so often. Yeah. And so I would always write though. And performing poetry, ah, that took so long. I had a terrible fear of public speaking, which you can't tell now because I talk so much. But, <laughs> but uh, when I first came to America, we were made fun of so often for our broken English that I just was very ashamed Mm. Uh, first because people always talked about our accents mm. and and it wasn't a Japanese accent either because we spoke Uchi no Gucci so that's yeah. different right so for example uh, in Japanese someone says Konnichiwa okay. right in Okinawa we say Haisai okay. totally different language right okay, totally okay. different dialect so whenever we came to America Japanese people can understand us mm-hmm. right Americans can understand us we're too light skinned to be colored people but we're also too like exotic looking to be white. So we got made fun of by all groups, right? And then, uh, so I never wanted to talk to people. And so I would always just write. I was writing a bunch and reading a lot. And I was like, I was determined. I was like, I'm going to use this language against them. Like (laughs) in a very vengeful fashion. I was like, yeah. And so uh, I was always writing songs, like really dark emo songs. (laughs) And, Mm. And eventually whenever I was pregnant with my daughter, that's probably when I was writing the most. I was really transitioning between one lifestyle and the next. And mm. I got into college. I was taking these theater classes and speech classes. And it was kind of forcing me to be in front of people and being mm. comfortable on stage. And then finally, I was going to these like First Thursday events at Hawaiian Brian's. Yes. And not Hawaiian Brian's. I mean, at uh, Fresh Cafe before they moved to Hawaiian Brian's. And mm. I was like, oh my God. I really want to do this and I want to like share my feelings and stuff and I I wrote this poem about my daughter uh, and that was the one I shared Mm -hmm. and I was like so excited and I was so nervous I performed on my 21st birthday and I remember exactly how it went like I was upset that I didn't get ID'd (laughs) and I was like I want to get ID'd because I'm 21 (laughs) and then I got super plastered and went on stage and like performed the poem like really terribly got terrible scores I felt great though I was so excited because I was like oh my god like that's what it's like to be on stage and Mm -hmm. then the next month I went and I was like completely sober and I was like no I'm Mm -hmm. not gonna do that I'm not gonna be that person and yeah, and it kind of just took off from there. And I really loved the atmosphere. Eventually, that would change. Like I, I stopped kind of going towards comp- competition mm-hmm. and became more of just like a share poet. Mm-hmm. I didn't really enjoy the idea of putting everything out there for a score. Yes. That's kind of something that still bothers me about that arena to this mm-hmm. day. I really enjoy people's poetry, but I don't enjoy when people traumatize themselves for their audience. Like just for the sake of scores and winning. just for the sake of winning you know and I was like why are you gonna put yourself through that you know because there's poems I'd be performing that I'm like oh my god I can't even be around people I would be crying on stage and I was like why are you doing this to yourself Ash like what are you doing what is it for and I was like for some points and some money like girl yeah. you gonna pimp out your life for money I was yeah. like so you know and I I, I really went into this like deep trance and it wasn't because I wasn't winning these things it was just like how much it started to mean to me yeah and others around me and I was like no I can't be that person like you know it became a really ugly effect between poets yeah and I was like oh I don't like feeling like this around my friends like people I trust you know I was like I don't want to feel like I'm competing with you bro or with you sis you know I want to know that we're in this together and it was it was really kind of a big revelation to me so I kind of dipped out of poetry for a minute became more of a page poet 
focused on my book and then went back to performing maybe a couple years ago. Yeah, that's very interesting. I had that debate with myself because South Africa for me and poetry was always like, okay, you'll write something, share it maybe if there's a platform. There was never really a stage at the time that I was there for that. And maybe I wasn't interested in that. But when I got here and I started going to Hawaiian brines and I was like, oh <laughs> man. And the first year was amazing. I was like, oh, we can do this. But I wrote a poem and particularly to win. Mm. I I wanted to win, but the words on the paper, they were just like, man, like you're just, this is your entire life and mm. all for what? Like, why are you changing? You don't even sound like yourself. Like this is your life story, but how you're telling it and how it feels, it's as if it's for points. So right. can we not, because that's not why you were given the poetry gift, you know? Right. And so a lot of the times when I go to the competitions, I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm kind of depressed. I'm kind of anxiety stricken. I have a therapist that I go to regularly. <laughs> My life is kind of a, you know, shit show. Yeah. But I'm here and I'm hoping someone in the audience will hear that and be like, man, oh, she's normal. You right. Know? No facts. That's kind of, that's exactly it. I think that's why, uh, cause people would ask me like, oh, Ashley, we don't see you around anymore. The shows, this and that. And I was like, yeah, I'm not really trying to know. Like, I'm not trying to be that depressed around people, yeah, yeah. you know? And then, uh. But there is this kind of beauty to it, right? That mm -hmm. that is kind of the attraction, isn't it? Yes. Isn't it that is. why we kind of go? We kind of we want to see. It's kind of like a who hurt more competition, mm -hmm. like who suffered more and gained what kind of beautiful metaphorical like rhetoric from this, you know? And yes. that was, uh, and it's not not in any offense to poets. Of course, there's poets mm -hmm. that do this for competition worldwide. They make a lot of money. They get a lot of fame from it. But I was never a poet that wanted fame. Mm -hmm. I've never been a person that wanted that. In my culture, it's very bad. Okay. Uh, to bring fame upon oneself is... Mm -hmm. uh, to bring the spotlight of evil upon yourself. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's to bring, basically, yeah, the spotlight of evil. It's a very terrible karmic uh, issue that we face. And it's it's one of those things, like, don't, don't indulge your ego mm -hmm. so much, right? And then to... And also, it's kind of like that, you know, have you ever seen Harry Potter? A little bit little bit okay so my imagination like the ego is like Voldemort right he okay. who should not be named and the more you don't give him a name the more power you give it but whenever mm -hmm. we're on stage we're like so excited to be that person we're excited yeah. to show off like this Voldemort person in our life even yeah. if it's us and we're like oh yeah but like really I'm this demon and this demon is me and we are each other and like you know we go in this like dark evil shit we're like oh and then everyone's in the state in the audience like oh snap man yes son yes yeah, yeah, yeah. get it poet and then yeah, yeah. and then but you're up there and you're like i don't get it though like this isn't like this isn't i wrote this specifically for you guys to get this reaction out of you and it felt yeah. very manipulative to me and it stopped feeling yeah. real yeah and the moment that happened i was like now nah, you need a dip scene because mm. that's not you you're not this person you sound like every other poet on brave new voices okay. you know and i was just like i'm not into that i didn't want to be all those poets I wanted my voice to be singular I wanted it to be unique mm. and that wasn't something that could be found in competition it no. was something that could be found in a tight-knit group of friends mm -hmm. in a small open mic mm -hmm. I wasn't doing it for pride anymore and mm. when that changed my poetry became very honest mm. it became very it became the voice I wanted it to have yeah. you know it stopped having that kind of like YouTube phenomena you know yeah. like where we say things and we're like and these last three 
words. You know, yeah. we stop we stop carrying that kind of rhythm and it became more organic. And that's whenever I fell in love with poetry again. Mm. Because it became so much work that I stopped liking it. Like mm. I would go there and I look at people and I was like, Oh, I'm gonna piggyback your poem with this poem yeah. and I'm gonna do you know, and like I was thinking so competitively, I was like, nah, yeah. and then it just made me not feel good as a person. Like mm. I was like, Oh, like you're not even writing poetry for the reason you started this, mm. right? And that was to heal. Like I stopped yeah. writing it to heal and I started using it to boast my own ego. Yeah. And that was just so wrong, right? No, so Yeah, so now it's changed a lot, like that that idea. <laughs> Let's jump a little bit. We may have spoken about this, but non-poets who watch poets perform often think she's phenomenal. Her poetry is incredible. But you and I both know how emotionally taxing poetry can be. What is it really like to write a poem about an emotional trigger and then share it with strangers? Well, first, thank you. That's so sweet. Uh, it's very humbling to hear. Uh, like, whenever you say that, I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, really? That's so nice. Uh, I think we have a hard time calling or thinking of ourselves as phenomenal people, mm. poets, artists, or et cetera, because we're like our harshest critics, yeah? Mm-hmm. I think people don't understand how hard writing a poem can be. Because, like I said, it means being honest with yourself, and that's not the easiest thing to do. Mm. Uh, I, I definitely struggle with that. And to be honest... My, most of my poems that people think are phenomenal, uh, there's a poem that you like the, that I'll be performing a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, and it was an ode to my grandmother and also my mental health. And and just like that, in many of my other poems, I'm writing it and it's like my, I've broken mm. keyboards because I've soaked them with tears and I don't mm. mean that metaphorically. I mean that like, nah, literally I had to break my keyboards because I'm, I'm typing them and crying over it and I'm, and I can't even see the screen. So I don't know if the words are making sense. And I'm just like banging out these poems and I read them whenever I'm back in a clear mind and I don't even know who that person was. I was like, Whoa, that was a lot girl. Like you Mm -hmm. said a bunch and it felt so cathartic, but also like, Mm -hmm. It's, it's a pressure I was trying to remove from my own chest, like an mm. anvil, you know? And, and I think that the audience doesn't understand what that feels like. Mm. So we put them in that position, right? We, we put them there with our words, yeah. with, our, with our body language, with the way in which we shape our words with our voice. But mm. those experiences are shared, right? Like people feel those ways. People feel depression and anxiety mm. and, you know, and the loss of control all the time. But mm-hmm. it's how we're able to connect that with one another that's important Mm -hmm. and I think people don't understand the weight that we carry from it Mm -hmm. you know like I don't always want to hug people after a show you know especially if I'm if I'm writing something that's so triggering like my poem bracelets Mm -hmm. uh, which has gotten me to travel a lot around the world Mm -hmm. I because I work with domestic violence action center Mm -hmm. and that poem ended up becoming one of their big like little uh like this is what represents our whole vision. And it was, and it was, and it's in a beautiful poem, Uh, not to like toot my own horn Mm -hmm. or anything. Mm -hmm. It is a beautiful poem, but it was written about being gang raped and Mm. how that led to the conception of my daughter Mm. and how I didn't understand how to love because of that. Mm. So when I was performing this poem over and over and over again, it wasn't just re-traumatizing myself. It was also desensitizing myself to my truth and my history Mm. and and people couldn't understand that like I would have flashbacks for days 
Or even like before, like I would be getting ready to go on stage and I would notice myself like feeling heavy mm. and I would notice myself like smelling things that I wasn't used to smelling and getting really anxious and kind of fidgety. Mm. And then I'd be just smoking cigarettes like constantly. I was like, mm. oh, I had no other way to cope. I just need to smoke. <laughs> and then, mm. and I would, I'd be smoking or drinking just to cope with this one poem. Yeah. And, and it's because people wanted to hear it all the time, you know, mm. and I was having to perform it around the world and... Don't get me wrong. It's not like, like I said, it was a good poem, you know, but I just didn't hear my voice in it after Mm. a while. You know, when people start to like a specific poem, you start to lose the authenticity that came with it, Mm. which is why I don't perform poems too often. I I don't like to do the same poem over and over again. Me too. Yeah. I like to keep it fresh. I like to keep it so that I'm not carrying my burdens with me all the time either. You know, because sometimes we do that. And we do it to ourselves, too. And we're like, why do I feel this way? And it's like, bitch, you did it to yourself. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So that's pretty much this. Yeah, that's... Uh, that was like bracelets for me, basically. Which is unfortunate, because I really did enjoy writing that. Mm-hmm. But it was never one of those poems I wanted people to remember me for. I didn't mm-hmm. want people to remember me for my tragedies. I wanted them to remember me for the person I became after that. Mm-hmm. You know, and so many people were focused on like, oh yeah, like you're that girl that wrote this poem, that, that braces poem, right? Mm-hmm. That or like the sex poems, which mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. I don't mind either. I like the <laughs> sex poems. I love writing sex poems. That's like my favorite shit ever in the world, you know? Because uh, I love passion and I love, yeah. I love love, you know? So, yeah, yeah. so I love writing things that combine the two, you know? Mm-hmm. But, then, <laughs> but then people only know you for one or the other. And yes. I was like, what would I rather have them remember? remember me for my tragedies or like my sexuality so Mm. I just kind of always went towards sexuality because I was like you know what I don't want people looking at me and being like oh yeah she was that girl that got gang raped though like uh you know I was I didn't want people to look at me like that anymore or like only remember me for like this trauma Mm. I was like no I'm also I'm I was like that did not define me I'm also still a very sexual being that has not stopped that (laughs) like I'm still a fun loving person I still Mm. enjoy like like you know different kinds of poems and also I'm not just a poet like people forget that we're not just poets right like I'm still an educator I'm also a mother I'm also a gardener and like a bunch of other different roles you know like not just limited to poetry right so I don't know (laughs) would you say that poets are empaths who continuously gaslight themselves for the amusement of an audience or are we just in group therapy Mm, I think it's a bit of both you know, I can be very overwhelmed at poetry events. That's one thing I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go in and I could feel energy. I actually wrote that in one of my poems. I could feel the energy before I even enter a room. I know what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. And I think poetry and slam poetry has done that for me. Where I see people preparing for a poem outside. Or I see the way that they're breathing. I could feel it in their, I could feel it in their company. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like I said earlier, I think people that use their trauma only to gain points is a very cruel act to put somebody through. Okay. Uh, as a coach uh, for Pacific Tongues, I remember just seeing that happen all the time. And also just in competitions, I would see this happen all the time. You know, they're taking the, these horrifying, traumatizing events, putting words to them, mm-hmm. and then being asked to perform them over and over and over again until it's perfected, you know? And then, and then they're asked to like, they're like, okay, so, but don't cry whenever you're doing this on stage. 
But you know what? Cry at the end so that you can get some good points out of it. You know, it was like one of those things where I'm like, wow, you're really abusing yourself just for the competition. And that's why I was like, nah, I need to step back because I can't watch people hurt themselves that way. That really hurts me too. And I think, but like I said, there's a, there's a level of attraction though, right? Yeah. Like we like to see this kind of effect happening to others because it allows us not just only to relate but it also allows us to see this kind of part that we couldn't before. Mm-hmm. And and I think that it, it is something that allows human connections to happen, right? So for example, some of your poetry, right? Mm-hmm. Whenever I heard you performing some of your poems at the Warrior Wahine event, mm-hmm. I was like, well, damn, okay, like, yeah, I feel that poem, yeah. right? But I knew that that was also crushing you whenever yeah. you're performing it. And, mm-hmm. and that's something that I think as poets we can respect, mm-hmm. but as audience members, they might not see that. They just see it as like, oh, she did a poem and that was cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I remember that or I felt those words, but they don't really understand how difficult it might have been to manifest the energy to perform those words, mm. to be in that space, to remember those things, mm. right? And it's a lot, right? And it's a lot of stress in general it to is. be a performing poet. Right, because you got to memorize a poem, mm-hmm. you got to sit there and practice all the time, you got to incorporate body language and like make it like look super hot, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then and then also like dress up and also impress people and also talk to everyone and then network and that energy is just like depleting. It is right. So by the end of the time that you're there, you don't even see the poets. Where are all the poets outside smoking, girl? Because yeah. we're stressed. You know that was a lot yeah it's a lot for us to take in and i think that as poets we are empaths we do feel each other's words it's why there's a lot of lovers that happen within the community Mm -hmm. right because we want to heal we want to be healed Mm -hmm. and i think that it's within that we found a beautiful and gorgeous community that was funded by by tragedy right Mm -hmm. and there is a beauty to that i'm not saying there's not a gorgeousness to it it's just that Mm -hmm we've become very kind of uh, we tend to exploit those things a little too often I think mm. for the sake of money fame recognition you know like yeah. and rather than just honoring our own history and who we are mm. so I think I don't know there's a delicate balance but there is a balance I think yes I think it's a little bit of both okay let's break it up with a poem a little bit I'm gonna have you slow down So this poem is called Kokusai Dori. It's an exploration of food and politics in Okinawa. My grandmother woke up every day at the same time, prayed at the same altar, went about her same business for over 60 years. She watched buildings rise and nations fall in the streets of Kokusai Dori. As a child growing, I watched her hands as they molded onigiri, dance in the wind, and traced the walls, the ruins of the Rukyun kingdom as we stepped off of the monorail. She could derail whole histories during our walks, talked of food magic and the power of food and the way it healed, the wounds of war and famine. I watched her body stand tall like a warrior as we walked through New Village, the militarized weapon of dependence, glowing white like the smile of a western sun, banners that looked like fireworks shooting across glass, the women, ivory mannequins, the ambrosia of McDonald's wet the air like rain, its golden arches like arms wanting to pull me in. I tugged my kachan's pant leg, a child's resistance as she dragged my young body forward. Countless generations of bodies she has had to carry through this street 
The streets roar with horns, the sounds of yelling between foreigners, gaijin. Bodies pour in like buckets of fish across the choppy waves of traffic. And on the chopping block of the island, chopsticks snap into work mode. The snapping of my grandmother's fingers wakes me from my lotus-eating temptations. I, in my four-foot splendor, leapt towards her as she gathered me before the hand of blood. I smelt its thickness in the air as she told me, you get used to it. As Kachan tapped her feet in a Morse code fashion, I remember trying to read the lyrics to her body of song. As she stared blankly into the open roads, mumbling a prayer, and I always thought I heard her mother's name. We crossed the streets towards Old Village. Her body becomes a willow tree, gently swaying to a melancholy melody. She points with her crooked finger and tells me, Here, your ancestors stayed then went back to humming folk songs, and in a sing-songy voice said, we get ready for Obon today. I don't know what that really meant, except that we got to hear Taiko and Asa all night long, watch Chondara and Moai throw their hands and fans up in song as we burn money at altars, spend over 10,000 yen on cantaloupe and plums, watermelons and grapes, meats and noodles. We gather like witches over fissured fish heads, pulpous pork bones, and the bite of bitter melon, the skin of East China Sea, a jade green that pours over our prayers into a stainless steel cauldron as if to keep them forever bones of sacrifice bask in barren beliefs she points out to me the oldest bento shop says that during the war she hid there it is the only place that ever got up from its knees this is real okinawa she confesses i am only now beginning to understand what she meant where the farmers fishermen seamstresses and merchants all gather in this old world exchange as if this warehouse sanction was still a wartime escape they reclaimed their culture here, and here they rebelled against the state. She became one of many smiles as we gathered and glided through the riverbank of markets. I was reminded that she was a skipping stone, there and then not. I remember skipping town Yaitai village, chasing the dancing lanterns cast out like a fishing line, being hooked on the sinking feeling of having left my grandmother behind. My only responsibility was to stay by her side. Our family's ghosts held my hand and led the way. I saw my grandmother hide behind a thick cloud of smoke, her teeth staining the sky like the eastern sun, as if waiting for me all along. She opened her arms and welcomed me home and said, Come, Ashchan, Ikuyo. Lately, I've traced the fingertips across the old Rukun walls. My daughter tracing my footsteps with her own, and I remember my grandmother. I watch my daughter swing her hands in the air, as if dancing in song or holding the hands of ghosts, decide to tell her the stories that Kachan did, but with the twist, as we leave the plot thickened with her bones, making our way down the same roads that she did to go home. breath after a poem <laughs> yeah that poem took a lot out of me actually I, I, I actually wrote that before class and I was but it was I was having these dreams about my grandmother and she had just recently passed away okay and uh, and I was remembering all of her stories and like I said she refused to speak in English but towards the last year of her life 
um, since most of our family didn't speak Uchinaguchi, she, she made efforts to try. Mm-hmm. And it was just so interesting to remember all these stories and then to go home and visit this place that was so mystical to me, you know, this place mm-hmm. full of magic. And and I was writing it and I had an assignment due and I was they're like, oh, you have to write a food poem. And I was like, I don't have food poems. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? And, uh, <laughs> and so, but I wrote this poem and I was like, I was in my car, like typing it on my phone because it was just like, it came with a fervor, you know, that I didn't understand. And yeah, I remember I was like crying though, writing it because I was remembering these things that I didn't, I didn't think I could remember from our childhood and from living in Okinawa and being this this child of a legacy like my grandmother. Mm. You know, she was one of the only World War II nurses that survived. And so she was actually awarded by Barack Obama a few years ago in 2016, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was really cool. Yeah, but that's like one of my good, that's one of my favorite poems towards her. <laughs> Grief, though. I hear you say, I started to remember things that I didn't think I would remember. And grief is like that. You know, you're grieving and you finally see the picture a little bit clearer. Right. You kind of see the, you kind of see the things that they wanted to pass down. Mm. I think grief allowed me to recognize the woman that my grandmother wanted me to become. Mm -hmm. And she was also the person that helped me cope a lot with my mental health. Mm -hmm. So, cause to her, it wasn't mental health. It was me being called upon. Okay. Right? From our ancestors to take on this legacy. Mm-hmm. And so for her, she was like, I knew from when you were in the womb. Mm-hmm. You know? She always say that. She's like, from the womb, I knew you would you would have to struggle mm-hmm. in order to get this. And then, because to her, this was a gift. Like, mental health isn't a thing in Okinawa. That's mm-hmm. not, it doesn't exist. Okay. Right? Uh, to them, those are, like, signs of, like, psychosis and, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of paranoia, insomnia, depression, things like that, uh, hysteria, are all signs of being a noro. <laughs> it's all signs of being a shaman, you know, and a yeah. healer. Because it's, it's those things that are giving you the practice to be compassionate and yeah. to be lenient towards energy. Yes. And I think that those are things that I, I was able to gain from her. Mm. And I didn't realize that until after she passed. And so it made me kind of sad, you know. I was yeah. like, oh, I wish you could see that I took up all the things you wanted me to do. She can. Yeah. Oh, I believe that. She's very much with me. We're very, yeah, yeah we, we got tighter with post uh, post mortem <laughs> I, yeah. I hear you say that i for me it's becoming clearer and clearer like i come from a generation of people who didn't recognize mental health issues you know my grandmother kind of saved my life way before i was born and by the time i was 6 she had full on dementia, you know, mm. couldn't remember my mother, couldn't remember any of my mother's other siblings except for my mother's younger brother. But so gifted, she had so much foresight. Mm. She could tap into things. I'm like, did you know, would you have understood me better now? You know, mm. with all this craziness that's like anxiety and depression, I'm starting to understand that a lot of people who are gifted have a lot of mental health issues Mm. and it's not mental health issues i relate to that so much it's not that we're crazy or we all belong right group therapy (laughs) whatever the notion is it's that you feel so much that you connect with people in ways that are 
not on a basic level, but on a spiritual level, like, hey, you're saying you're okay. You're saying it's okay at work, but I can, I can feel that your space isn't the space where you want to be. And mm -hmm. I don't know how to help you if you don't tell me, you know, this right. is what's up. No facts. I think that that's, that's something I struggle with all the time. Uh, my, my partner, comma, he knows, uh, yeah. cause I can feel his energy before he even comes home. Yeah. Uh, my grandmother was the same, actually similar. She had dementia. And I always thought that was the world's way of asking for forgiveness. Because mm. uh, I feel like through after all the struggles, they're like, let me help you forget. You know, mm. let me just bring you the things that keep you childlike. Mm. You know, and, uh, and it was so sad to see my grandmother slip into that. Um, mm. She had very severe Alzheimer's. And uh, they called her paranoid schizophrenic um, in America, not in Japan, okay. but in America. That's what they diagnosed her as with uh, high functioning de uh, dementia. Mm -hmm. And so whenever we saw her kind of slipping away, she didn't remember anything but her childhood. Mm. And it was kind of the most touching thing, actually, because I learned so much about our history through that. Because it was mm. something she never spoke about in her, yeah. in her adult years. She never talked about her childhood. Yeah. So towards the end of her life, to revisit the beginning mm. was one of the most powerful treasures we could have gotten. And I think that's something I still value to this day. But uh, yes, I agree. Um, I think that with this... You know, uh, poets, a lot of poets I know are empaths. Uh, yeah. and, and with that, we have a very special gift that really kind of allows us to harness energy, but also drains it from us. Mm -hmm. You know, like for like I said, I could feel when Kama's going to come home upset. Yeah. And, and, I'll, and I'll even tell him, like, he'll be like, oh, I'm fine. Baby, I'm fine. Everything's good. And I was like, no, I can feel it like something's yeah. off. Like, I know, I know you're, I know you're saying that, babe. And I was like, but you're yeah. lying to me. You're lying to yourself. And I'll get mad. Yeah. And then people hate that about me. They're like, yeah. bitch, can you stop? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, people don't like when you tell them that something's off and it, and they know that it's off. Yeah, yeah. You know, because it kind of feels like an attack. Like, hey, yeah. like, maybe I don't want to talk about this with you. Mm -hmm. Right. And I have to remember to respect people's spaces mm -hmm. uh, because it's a gift that I was given. And I, and I don't, yeah. it's not like I like it. Like, I don't want to feel this way, mm -hmm. but I feel it when I'm around you. And I, and I try to make sure that people are understanding of that. Like, if I come up to somebody and I say hi to them, I'm going to know exactly how they're feeling before I ask them, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. You know? And, and I don't just say it lightly. Like, cause I don't I ask everybody. Yeah. <laughs> People are always like, Oh, Ashley, you're so nice. I'm like, no, I'm really not. <laughs> I, I'm just very selective. I'm very selective yeah. with the people I invite into my life and into my energy, into my space, into my community mm -hmm. because of all the experiences I've had before. Uh, yes. I can be very giving, but it can be very trying for me. And I'm mm -hmm. only now in these last few years learning how to say no and create boundaries mm -hmm. because my energy can be also very exhausting for people. And I yes. have to be aware of that, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I do suffer depression. Yeah. I do suffer anxiety. I'm bipolar, you mm -hmm. know, and and also I'm a person that's living in today's life under mm -hmm. today's political and economical atmospheres mm -hmm. and trying to balance this diasporic need to return home mm -hmm. and also this need to thrive in a country I don't belong in. You know, so it's just these all these worldly pressures combined onto one human spirit 
multiplied by their community, that's a lot to put on anyone, mm. you know? So I think that that's something that should be more considered in time. Like you did this beautiful thing, which I really appreciate. And you always ask if I'm in the right space to do something before mm. we do anything. And I'm like, oh, I respect and appreciate this so much because no one else does that. Yeah. You know, people are very quick to be like, hey, you look like you're doing well. Can I just vent to you for like 50 hours? And I'm like, oh, uh, no. <laughs> but then I do because, you know, in my mind, sometimes I feel like I know that, like I said before, I always struggle with my name, mm. you know, and I'm like, it's fine. I can struggle so that they can find peace. I can struggle. I can take it, you know, because I feel like I've taken on so much pain. Yeah. that a little bit more isn't going to hurt me, but then mm. I don't realize how exhausting that is, right? Like, yes. so for example, the past two weeks, I've been very giving of my attention and space to others. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't always do readings, but it's been requested a lot lately, which was weird because I, I never talked about doing them. Mm -hmm. And then so people started asking me, and I was like, how did you know that? How did you know that? That's yeah. weird, you know? Yeah. And then... Uh, because like I said, my grandmother, she taught me these ways, right? So yeah. tea divination is a big thing in our family and tea yeah. blending and just food magic in general. So, uh, Yakuzen, right? So, <laughs> uh, but when people started finding out about that, they wanted to hang out more and I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. I was like, this is a very white thing happening. <laughs> you know, just using people up for their magic and then being like, oh, witch. <laughs> but it was... And I had, and then I just, I went back into this kind of thing where I was like, they need it more than I do. They mm -hmm. need it more than I do. And it was one person after another, after another. Cause you know, the world throws people into these things. And then I was like, ah, oh, but I could like feel like, well, like we talked about ancestors are very fidgety, right? Yeah. If we choose to benefit from these things in any way, mm -hmm. you know, like they can be very disproving of that. Cause in our culture, mm -hmm. we don't use these practices to gain, you know, admiration mm. uh you know to inflate our ego to gain financial means it's always meant to be exchanged mm. right and so i wasn't getting the exchange part i was yeah. just giving and giving mm. and giving and then finally my body was like no you need to take so it made me sick i got very ill mm -hmm. and then i finally learned how to rest for the first time mm -hmm. in a long time which has been very difficult <laughs> so just to stay still and be in one place Okay, so at what point in your life did you decide this amazing poetry deserves a book? Ah, uh, you know, I didn't decide that on my own. Actually, my professor sent my book out to get published. Uh, Robert Barkley, wonderful man. I wrote my book, Blood, Sweat, and Breast Milk, over the length of a summer. And I was grieving. Oh, I was grieving so hard. And I just had my first, I just had my first manic episode, which I wasn't exposed to. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you know this, but bipolarism actually doesn't typically take effect until early 20s for women. Okay, okay. And so, yeah, I had my first episode and I lost my mind. I really did. I lost my mind. Mm. And I sent my daughter to the mainland with my sister. I had the whole summer to myself. My ex-lover passed away. And he was somebody that meant so much to me. And I, I didn't know how to cope. Mm -hmm. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink anything. I was very... Uh, malnourished <laughs> that summer yeah. and I ended up just writing I was like if you don't cope the right way you will go down the same path he did you know mm -hmm. and so I used all the time to write with a fever it was crazy just mm -hmm. all these poems were spilling out of me that I didn't know I had yeah. and I 
sent them to my teachers because I was like all excited. I was like, hey, like this is what kind of came out of this process. I'm sorry that I was really shitty in your classes, but here's what I've done. And then one of my teachers was like, no, you need to get published. This needs to get published. And I was like, no, I don't think it's that good. And he was like, this is good. This is great. Like you just need to edit it. And then he sent it to all these teachers to be edited. Mm-hmm. And it came into fruition a year later. And I ended up getting invited to Thailand to read from this book. I got to read this book when I was in Europe. Uh, and I was invited to a lot of different places for domestic violence action centers to talk about it and kind of share my experiences with the world, really. And from there, I ended up getting the stupid amount of courage to be like, I want to do a second book and I'm going to name it She Crazy. And that book is actually coming out this year. Oh. Yes, so uh, I have a few publications coming out this year, actually. So I got uh, published in Harvard. Yes. Um, So that's uh, for my talks on... So this is more of my political writing. It's not... It's actually not novel writing or anything. It's actually just, like, purely rhetoric. And so it's, like, talking about race. Mm -hmm. And and I talk about race in a very interesting way involving hip-hop culture, poetry, Mm. and common politics. So... Exciting. (laughs) Yeah, and then I have uh, these poems getting published for the UH Manoa Journal, which will be exciting. And then... uh, But finally, She Crazy, which will be coming out this year. I'm just going to, like, shamelessly plug that in. Please. Yes. (laughs) So She Crazy is basically talking about this journey uh it talks about mental health not just motherhood but just living as a woman uh lots on feminism as well as kind of enlightenment and basically just the journey of becoming and what it means to be crazy quote unquote Mm. in this world and I really wanted to kind of dig into that you know so I talk about like old like prehistoric times of what it meant to be like crazy and mad and like this kind of like loose woman you know and then (laughs) and how crazy has been translated today and how we use that to our advantage also Mm. too so I kind of talk about the intricacies of that and the complications that come with it and like how we kind of abuse our own traumas Mm -hmm. to be like to work for us you know Ah, we're like oh hey like I'm gonna use this as a scapegoat because I can blame it like and be like Mm -hmm. oh no well like you can't say that because that triggers me you know Mm -hmm. so I wrote a couple poems about that because those are issues that still get under my skin (laughs) I'm like oh really no we can't be those people (laughs) so yeah so I talk about those issues I talk a lot though about it so my but that's the kind of the goal is like by the end of the book they're like oh my god this bitch is crazy (laughs) so so that's kind of like the hopeful effect. <laughs> okay, so blood, sweat, breast milk. Yes. Where can we find it? Blood, sweat, and breast milk can be found on Amazon as well as most bookstores, actually. Uh, Barnes & Noble seems to carry a few copies every now and then, okay. but they always are happy to order it because uh, okay. their poetry selection is pretty limited to like white people. Yeah. Um, they don't really have Asian poets, black poets. Yeah. Uh, th- as you know, you know, I'm like, it's very uh, diluted color-wise. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but Amazon always, uh, people can always grab it from me, which is fine at any like poetry bodega, open mic. Yes, Ashley and I are members of the poetry bodega. Yes. Every Saturday now it is. Oh, every Saturday, right, at the yeah. corner store, Good Vibe Center, right? Yes. Yes, so... Anytime I'm over there, I'm pretty much pretty handy with the book mm-hmm. and always happy to sign it. Plus, I give a special discount at the open mics events. Oh, so instead of like 15 bucks, it's like 10 bucks. Oh, yeah. Cool. And like and like a lot of the proceeds, actually half my proceeds goes towards domestic violence action centers. So it goes it gives back to the community as well. Which brings me back to my question. 
when did you start working with domestic violence survivors? That was about eight years ago. So my daughter, like I mentioned earlier, was conceived in a very horrific uh, experience. I was in a very abusive relationship with a man named Tommy. He was gorgeous, super beautiful looking man. You know, he looked like he walked straight out of a Tropical Sun commercial. Like, Jesus, <laughs> goddamn, you know? Like, uh, but, and I'm Buddhist saying that. You know? <laughs> like, but he was, ah, uh, he was literally sociopathic. Um, and he was not a good person. I found out that he was a terrible guy. You know, he was not only like a murderer slash sociopath slash rapist, but he was also a pedophile. And when I found out about all of this, I tried to leave and yeah and he didn't want me to leave uh, I just remember hearing this like huge crack sound and everything just went kind of black and I woke up and I remember just like I just remember the smell of blood uh, so the bracelets poem was actually written from that experience mm-hmm. and I just remember smelling blood a lot and I don't know how long I was unconscious for actually so mm-hmm. I do suffer from brain damage from that time and uh, as well as like lots of spinal injuries rib injuries etc and yeah, and I was just ceaselessly raped for a long time, days, weeks. I will never really know how long, because uh, I was just in a room, and I was just tied face down to a bed. And like the only time I was allowed to shower is when he would let me. And it was just really, it was just really bad. And so whenever I left, I went like full Medea on him and like beat him with a pot of ramen. <laughs> Yeah, why not, right? And I managed to make it out of the house half naked with a box of letters um, that he wrote, like, confessing to these, like, heinous things that he had done. And I just remember being on the run, and I remember how scary that felt to know that he was going to come after me. It was so fucking scary. And I just remember every single moment after that, like, I until I came back home. And even through the court and the trials of everything, I just remember the words he was always saying, he like said to me before he got convicted was, if you think what I did to you is bad, just wait till I meet our kid. And I just, I never forgot those words. And I just remember how, how scared I was for my daughter and how scared I was for other women who had gone through something like this. And when I came home and I started doing more work in poetry, uh, I really started finding myself kind of gravitating towards women of domestic violence and abuse and just my social circles. Like I just started hearing about it more often, like things that I never heard about before I was hearing about more often and and I wanted to be someone they could talk to and I felt like people naturally just kind of opened up to me about it. And so I started leading poetry workshops and I was like, hey, like this helped me, maybe it can help you. And I was still a new poet at the time. I was not experienced at all, like well enough to do that. So. I started doing poetry workshops. I started working with women in prisons. From there, I started working with juvenile detention. From And then I was working with men in detention centers as well. I've done work all along the West Coast with juveniles and men in detention centers and working with men and becoming advocates against domestic violence. So, because I, I think people don't, people don't often like to talk about how often men are abused mm-hmm. and how cyclical that has become for them and why they end up taking these kind of afflictions out on women Mm -hmm. and also men that are abused by women you know Mm -hmm. my father was sexually abused by his mother for years and it really it really messed him up he became a very violent person because he didn't know how to cope and no one taught him how to cope because you weren't allowed to talk about that 
Because guess what? You can't be abused by a woman. No. Right? Women don't have the strength to do that, right? So it was like we're this kind flowers, of... We're flowers, remember? Right, yeah. We're like, these da- we're like these dainty little things. And yeah. so... Uh, but I know firsthand that women can be very cruel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I wanted to help children not feel that effect. I wanted to break the cycle, not just for my own family, but also for the families of others. Mm-hmm. And I think that... I would like to think, at least, that through this work it's happened for some people. You know, I still keep in touch with a lot of the people I've worked with before, mm-hmm. and and it's really great to see how far they've come in their lives and how much they've used poetry or writing in general to get there. Like, a lot of the people have become published poets mm-hmm. or playwrights, or they do all kinds of, like, community events, and I'm just so proud of them, and I'm like, wow, like, look how much you've grown into this beautiful person that has manifested their own destiny, their own truth, and has allowed to take, and has taken their children with them on this journey and not push them away. Because it's so easy to push your kids away. I remember that was one of my greatest fears was when I found out I was pregnant, I was already four months along, you yeah. know, and I and I didn't know the father. When they told me the timeline, I knew it was from when I was being raped. Yeah. And I, I remember just thinking, I was like, how am I going to do this? I was just so scared. And then, uh, and I was like, fuck it, I'll just get an abortion. Like, that's cool. I don't have to do this. Yeah. <laughs> and I went to the, I planned, I planned a, a trip to the Planned Parenthood. And then I saw, I saw her and I, I couldn't do it. I was like, she's not, she's not him. She's not anybody but me. That's yeah. all me. And it's so funny because people are always like, she looks just like you. She's just a mini you. And I was like, cause that is, she is a miraculous conception of myself. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, she does. Yeah, she's, oh, and she's so amazing. And you know, and that's the thing is she really is a gift. Mm-hmm. And like, I and you know, I was never supposed to get pregnant, which is hilarious. Cause now that I'm pregnant again, I'm always thinking, I'm like, wow, like my children have only come from hardships. Mm-hmm. You know, like my daughter, uh, Lila, who, um, her name is actually uh, the one, sorry, the awakening, the blossoming lotus, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea of coming out of the muddy waters and changing somebody's life, you know? And then Atlas, uh, the strength, right? The bearer Mm -hmm. of the heavens, you know? Because we lost so many children trying to conceive this one. And so I was like, oh my God. Like, so when we found out we were pregnant, I had a hard time getting attached because at first I was like, maybe the only way I can get pregnant is if I get gang raped. Maybe that's the only way I can do this. And then I was like so traumatized because I couldn't stay pregnant. You know, I make it to like three, four months and then we lose the baby. And I was like, oh my God. Like, and you know, as a woman, that can be really like, ugh, you know, like draining on the soul. So. And I was, and I talked to a lot of women in, in the DV circles about it too. And I was like, I just don't know what I'm doing wrong. I don't know what's happening. And she was like, Well, you know, like you're putting a lot of pressure on these pregnancies, you know, and like maybe it's because of this trauma that you're doing that. And I, and I finally had to learn how to let go. And that was the hardest thing to do, was because it wasn't about forgiving Tommy. That's something I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. It was about forgiving myself for being in that situation to begin with mm-hmm. and allowing somebody to treat me that way and allowing myself to be okay with that treatment. Mm-hmm. So it was a long journey for sure. <laughs> it was not an easy one, but it's still it's still one I work with. So I, I took some, uh, I've actually taken some time away from the uh, DV circles just to kind of heal because it does exhaust me. And uh, I've ended up focusing my, uh, a lot more of my practices with children. So I work right now at Olamana School. So the detention, uh, the Hawaii Youth Correctional Facility. 
So I work there teaching culinary arts, talking about food magic. Uh, yes, talking about ethics, hilariously enough, and <laughs> teaching poetry. That's really kind of my, my go-to stuff. I, I, love do, I love working with them. They remind me so much of my youth and also my brothers and sisters growing up that it's actually quite exciting every day. It, everyone always thinks it's challenging. They're like, oh my God, you work with degenerates. And I'm like, no, I... I really just work with creative minds. They just think differently. The way that they, the way that they put problems together or take them apart, is absolutely different from the way a kid from Punahou would do it. Yes. But I bet my kid would do it more creatively. You're a phenomenal human being. Oh my god, like no! You <laughs> go through all this trauma, okay? And maybe it's part and parcel life journey, right? The greatest healers are the most wounded mm. yeah you mm. you kind of have to know a lot of the hurt to be able to heal a lot of it right and i think that's why i always talk about my name because mm. that's that's something my grandmother gave me and i think and like i said i've taught i've written whole poems about this mm-hmm. you know because uh my greatest analogy is basically like a child a sick child uh mm. you feel so much you know, if you put a newborn into an emergency room, they'd be exposed to all kinds of terrible things. Not just the traumas of others, but also their energy, also mm-hmm. uh, weaknesses and, you know, and their own vulnerability towards like, uh, let's say like disease, colds, flus, etc. Mm-hmm. My, my soul feels like a child, like an infant, you know, yeah. and, and it's been heavily affected. But I always think about that. I'm always thinking like, no, my grandmother named me that for a reason. Mm. I was supposed to struggle so I could become enlightened. Every time I seem to struggle, I always am reminded of my grandmother. And I'm like, ah, yes. She is a constant reminder that my struggles are meant to connect me to other human beings. And meant to help me help others. And not mm. just, not, and not to say like, not like the kind of help that's like, oh, hey, please listen to me so you can avoid these same mistakes. Mm. Mine's more like, hey, I'm gonna hold. I'm gonna stand by you, hold your hand while you make these mistakes, and mm-hmm. tell you that it's not your fault, and tell you it's gonna be okay, mm-hmm. and that you're gonna learn a lot from this, and that one day you'll be able to do the same thing, you know, and give somebody that space to be, you know, to be themselves, to have mm-hmm. mistakes, to be full of flaws, because it's so wrong to have people carry people these expectations, to be like, hey. I did this, so you shouldn't do this. And it's like, but you got to do that, though. Like, yeah. And I'm a hard-headed person. Like, I got to learn things on my own. Yeah. So a lot of the kids I work with, I'm like, oh, I don't want you to do that, but I know you're going to. So you know what? I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to wait patiently. And whenever you're ready, you can come to me. And I'm not going to judge you. Because how could I? Yeah. Right? I think that's kind of the most beautiful thing is I've done so much terrible things. That's why people are like, oh, you're so good. You say I'm phenomenal. I'm like, oh, no, I'm such a terrible human being. <laughs> <laughs> I've done so much terrible stuff. Yeah. But it's through those things where I'm like, no, I can't judge people. So mm-hmm. it leaves me to be completely humble. Right? Because mm-hmm. there is no ego. There is nothing oh. like that. Because I can't. Like, how could I be high maka maka and then be like, oh, but I also did all these things. <laughs> like, you know, it makes no sense. No. So I think that's allowed me to connect with others in a way that is unlike other people. Right? Because when mm-hmm. I look at you, I'm looking at you. Mm-hmm. I'm not distracted by my phone. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about other people. It's just us. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think that it's because of that lack of distraction people feel more comfortable talking with me mm. and speaking their truth because I'm not really there to judge them. I'm really just there to listen and be like, hey, 
I feel you, bro. Yeah, Yeah, I feel that. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? So I think people need that more often than they say they do, Mm -hmm. you know, because we're put up in a society where we constantly have to fake these emotions to please others. Yes. Or to be accepted within society and Mm -hmm. not be ourselves, you know, for the sake of making others happy. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's so sad, you know? Like, it's so sad that we have to do that for everybody. Mm -hmm. So I don't mind taking on those pressures to help mm-hmm. alleviate that for someone else, mm-hmm. you know? I feel like it's only fair. That's the gift I was given, so yeah. that's the only one I should be able to, like, you know? Yeah. Like, that's, yeah, yeah, exactly. You're beautiful, man. <laughs> so somewhere throughout this pregnancy, teaching poetry at detention centers and assisting domestic violence survivors, you decide, I'm going to start a business, <laughs> Okay. Where do you get all this time? Do you have the same 24 hours a day we do? Or do you, the heavens just give you a little extra because you're so extra? But yeah, I am so extra. <laughs> you would think I don't get the same 24 hours. Uh, no, the heavens have not divined this extra time for me. Uh, they have given me mental health issues. So <laughs> no, um, I actually just don't sleep. I, I really, I don't sleep much. I, mm. I sleep maybe a few hours a day. Uh, thank you, bipolarism. Uh, <laughs> and also just the, the passion of being an artist. You know, the, I think the most blissful thing about being an educator is that I get time off. Mm-hmm. I get winter, spring, summer. And it's in those times that, because I get a lot of ideas all the time. Basically, mm-hmm. my mind, if you can imagine this, uh, imagine like a web browser with 12 tabs open. Three of them are like different music mediums. Another one is like Pinterest. Another one is like YouTube rabbit holes. (laughs) You know, I have a lot of tabs open at the same time. I'm constantly thinking. And it's during the time I have the breaks that I'm able to explore those thoughts. I'm able to write my poetry. I'm able to invest in businesses or take part in business ventures. So I use those time. I use that time wisely. I'm very, uh, some would say anal retentive i i'm very organized and i'm very kind of uh i mean like you said you sent me questions and i was like <laughs> because in my mind i i really believe firmly in an action okay i don't like to just talk about ideas mm-hmm. i like to fulfill them i don't like to think about revolutionaries i like to partake in them mm-hmm. you know so for me it's very important that my action meets my words so when i say i'm gonna do something i just do it it's mm-hmm. not like a, oh, hey, like I had this thought. Like I was like, oh, no, hey, I'm going to do this thing if you want to join me. Like, Let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and I was, I'm come from a long line of women that are just like that. Mm-hmm. And so now, same 24 hours, I just use them in a very weird, strategic way. You know, uh, you actually want to hear it. So actually, so this is my, my thing lately, which has been kind of beautiful. Okay. Uh, I start my morning. I take my dogs to the beach or I go on a hike. Okay. Uh, if I go on a hike, I forge my teas. Or at if, eight months pregnant. Yes, at eight months pregnant. And I, I go get all my stuff for my teas or my medicinal herbs from the mountains. Uh, or if I go to the beach, I just go there to float and gain peace. Mm-hmm. I do it every other day. So I hike one day, I go to the beach the next day. Okay. And then uh, I go home, I enjoy some tea, I read a book. Or not a book, but you know, like I read. And then and then from there, whenever I'm like, okay, I'm done reading. <laughs> like, I just start to begin, I begin doing other things. So, Because at that point, I'm relaxed, right? Okay. Yeah. So then I make my ice creams. And then after my, I make okay. my ice creams, I let those freeze in the freezer. And then I start doing my tea blends. After my tea blends, I do my cleansers. After that, I cleanse my house. And then I cleanse myself. And then I pick up my daughter. I prepare mm-hmm. dinner. I put her to sleep. 
Uh, I spend time with my partner. When he goes to sleep, I do my poetry. Mm. So I I just use time in a weird way. I think that <laughs> I, I, I just, in my mind, I don't want to waste time. I, I, I want to, to make sure I get the most out of life because I wasn't always promised another day. Mm-hmm. And I know that women like me do not live as long as others. So <laughs> for me, I want to make sure that my legacy is very strong and I leave mm-hmm. a good one behind for my children. So it's really important that I can teach them that you can do this too. Mm-hmm. That even with this time left, you don't have to just watch TV or get lost in social media or drama. That you can actually use this time to invest in yourself, to be an entrepreneur, to be a woman, a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, because I always used to look up to men who had all these titles. And I was like, oh, he's a philosopher and a scientist and a this and an alchemist. Oh and I was like, women can be the same thing. Yes. And I wanted to show my daughter that. And so I keep these practices alive through her, you know, like already I've introduced her to the art of tea, to the art of medicinal herbs, Mm -hmm. you know, and also practicing spiritualism at the same time and Mm -hmm. how to she how can balance the two, you know, because it's very difficult in this day and age. And especially as an academic, which we've talked about, like, you know, it's it can be really intense because I'm like, how do I balance this kind of supernatural essence with also this academic presence that I have in my life? You know, because I'll be going to Berkeley soon. And I'm like, okay, those people do not think how I think. They're not thinking like, oh, hey, I really like your culture and the fact that you believe in animism and that there's spirits and everything. If I said that, people would be like, uh, she needs to be checked into a hospital (laughs) and we need to study her. Like, you know, so so it's a delicate delicate balance right but uh for example i have a degree in ethnopharmacology mm-hmm. so i balance my own cultural practices within that you mm. know my grandmother taught me about tea tea divination and i balance it with medicinal backgrounds mm. right and having a strong structure in that if i'm doing a paper research you know i'm making sure that i'm including spiritual identity because it's important in our cultures and it's mm-hmm. one of the things that have taken place as long as history has been known yes as long as it's been written and before that so for me it kind of just goes hand in hand you know and mm-hmm. that's something that i want my daughter to make sure she is firm in mm-hmm. and both my kids right and also all of our children i feel like especially in hawaii mm-hmm. you know especially with things that are going on in Mauna Kea at the moment yeah. you know it's very important that we understand where we come from and mm-hmm. how divinely intertwined spiritualism science and cultural practices are Mm. you know and so because there doesn't have to be a fight you know it can there can be an understanding but it just has to be one without ego involved Mm. one without only academia only religion only you know what i mean like it has to be an open conversation right yeah yeah i'm kind of i'm like a part of me being on the spiritual journey is about forgetting Mm. academics like my ancestors are kind of like yeah that accounting that financial management degree it ain't gonna work hon we're we're (laughs) sorry you kind of like we know you kind of like went to a private college not high makamak or anything but we kind of sent you there to show you this and to kind of reach out to the people who went there with you Mm. but not really to identify you as such like those two cannot be in the same room together and i'm having a hard time i'm like man i wasted years of my life well i went to school and i did all of these things why can i not use it and Mm. i'm like no you're here to do something very very different but you have to go there first yeah to get here 
But see, and that's the thing is like you needed that to make the connection to now. Mm. You know, maybe it's the people you met during that time. Yeah. You know, because that's something I always think about. I'm like, man, I wasted all this money and I'm in all this debt from student <laughs> loans. Like, but then I think I'm like, no, but I needed those human connections and those experiences mm. and those talks and lectures and da 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 da, you know, and those are the things that help me to connect the past to present to future. So, you know, I'm sure it's the same for yourself. It's probably just you know, finding out what it is, right? Because like Buddha says, right? It's not about the destination, it's the journey. Yeah. yeah? So yeah. it's, which is always this part we struggle with. We're like, just mm-hmm. tell us what it is. Like yeah. we want the answer so bad. But sometimes it's right in front of us and we just choose to ignore it because we're like, ah, I don't want it to be this simple. I want it to be, you know, like I want it, you know, and that's the thing, we'll fight the simplicity yeah. so much when if we just embrace it, you know? It would be so much easier, yeah? Yeah. Oh man. Tell us about the birth of Sprig and Motor. Oh, Sprig and Mortar. Yes. So like I said, I have a degree in anthropharmacology, so my beliefs were to heal. Right? That's something that I really love uh doing. I love thinking about it. I love plants and medicine and how and also desserts and things like uh so Sprig and Mortar is we do ice creams, tea blends, facial cleansers, house cleansers, pet snacks. Like I do a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Just things I think are necessary in our human life, right? Mm-hmm. So like beauty products for women. Uh, it's all natural, right? But it's also things that aren't stripping us of our natural beauty mm-hmm. at the same time, you know? Because so many people are like, oh... Like, you know, blemishes are natural to humans, but we always want to get rid of it because of social media, right? Yeah. Uh, but Instagram my, models. Instagram models. But that's why filters exist. Girl Photoshop. <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but little things like that. Like, I want to remind people what beauty is and its essence of, of, uh, of nature. And then uh, when my dog passed away, it sounds so weird. sounds so white of me to say this, but you know what? It's okay. Uh, I'm very attached to my animals. I do not like humans as much, but I do love my animals. And when my dog passed away, I needed a project and I wanted to dedicate something to uh, the ability he gave me to heal and not to be hurt so much again. So I created a line originally designated to be uh, for pets. And taking care of our furry friends. Um, so, and then it kind of just spread. I was making ice creams. I, I learned about it when I was in Europe. And then I was like, oh, it'd be so great if I could combine mental health. And I, because I was eating so much ice cream at the time. It wasn't just pregnancy. It was like me grieving and mourning and then just kind of digging into like sweets, you know. And then I was like, oh, but if I combine this with this... I was I could actually treat my depression. Mm. So uh, if I combine lavender and chamomile into the ice cream, I could actually help myself with my sleeplessness. If I did this, and so I started finding all these ways to kind of treat mental health issues through things that we naturally indulge in every day, like ice cream, right? Yeah. The vegan line is wor- is in process. We I like it for the vegan. Ah, uh, thank you. We vegans appreciate you. Oh, I thank you, and I'm glad that you appreciate the ice cream. I know that you, I like you like the chocolate espresso brownie one. Yeah, that's yeah, it's yeah. phenomenal. <laughs> thank she you. She makes like, really, really good ice cream. I haven't bought ice cream since I got your tubs. I love you so much. Thank you. That's so <laughs> sweet of you. Yeah, I love I love working with ice cream. Uh, just because it's so much fun, you know, mm-hmm. and it's something mm-hmm. that I can involve my daughter in. Yes. And and I just love making. It. I like making people happy, and I like. You know, food. I love food. I love food. Uh, like I said, we come from a culture of food magic. So for me, it's very important. 
Uh, also teas, tea blends. That's my grandmother. That's something I strictly dedicate to her. Uh, so it came from this idea of healing and also just kind of uh, bringing farm to table back in a way that was affordable, mm-hmm. also economical, and also catered to everyone's needs, mm-hmm. right? So I wanted it to be something that was cruelty-free. I wanted it to be something that was affordable in Hawaii, you know, because Hawaii is expensive enough, sis. You know what I mean? Like, no need for, like, $15 goods, you know? Like, how come we can't use things that are, like, plant-to-table plant to that are mm-hmm. also affordable, that people should be able to indulge in and not be rich to do it, mm-hmm. you know? Because growing up poor, I couldn't afford the things that I make, you know yeah. what I mean? So why would I do that to other people that were in my situation, too, you yeah. know? Like, that just seemed unfair. That so that's why sense. I struggle. I'm like, oh, yeah, just take it. <laughs> generational curses do you believe in them absolutely yes yes uh oh god yes Uh, the women in my family are cursed we're cursed to be single it's why it's why i haven't been married um and i and why i choose to remain to just to remain not married until that's something that i feel we could break uh like i said um in going back to my family's history I feel like that's something that I can change and break the curse that we have on our, placed on ourselves because we have a lot of intergenerational shame based around the women that used to practice. And I think that because we've neglected our ancestors for so long, they've taken it out on us. Mm. You know, They let a lot of our women suffer mm. so much. Only the women, though. The men seem to live short but successful lives mm-hmm. that lead in painful uh, paranoid schizophrenia. <laughs> yeah. But... And uh, the women just, they endure so much, but they live forever, Mm. you know? And that's something that I don't want for myself nor my children. And so I want to make sure, and I feel like by being in touch with my roots again and practicing what my ancestors wanted, it's allowed me to be back in a space where we can heal Mm -hmm. and where we can learn from the mistakes of our past and where we can propagate a better future for other generations to come, Mm. you know? So I think that that's the way that we break it is having the courage to first say I'm not okay and then to say but I can fix it Mm -hmm. if I try hard enough if I focus well enough and if I make sure to put these practices first Mm -hmm. and not on the back burner you know sometimes we forget our ancestors and I think that that's where we lose our identity yes and that's where curses come from Mm -hmm. I think you know like my father's played with the curse of never knowing where we came from, right? Because he comes mm-hmm. from br- breeding plantations, you know? Mm-hmm. So our family line ends there, you know? Mm-hmm. And then my mother's side, it ends with women just being tortured and killed for practicing shamanis- shamanism. So mm-hmm. it's just, uh, it's one of those things where I'm like, if we can just reverse one at a time with each generation to come, then I'd be happy with that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I totally believe in generational curses. I think that they just manifest in different ways. My mom um, usually says to me, she's into the seventh generation thing that she's trying to teach me. So every seventh generation, there's a healer that comes by that is meant to heal seven generations before and seven generations after Mm. from both sides, paternal and maternal. Mm. And it's like, so she's like, we're seventh generation, you know? And I'm like, how did you figure that out? And she's like, when I meditate, the ancestors are telling me mm. that seven, seven forward, seven back. I'm like, oh, look at you, fancy. I shouldn't meditate like that. I hear you saying neglect. You know, I, I try and make time for 
my ancestors, the space and this podcast is kind of for that. But life gets in the way, you know, all those energies channeling through you the whole time. It just becomes hard to shut it down and go, okay, I'm here. I'm going to stop running. I'm mm. going to stop acting stupid. What do you guys have to say? You know, and then you finally hear it. Like I have moments where I finally hear it and I'm like, okay, I hear what you're saying. And I'm like, but how? How? Like I get it, mm-hmm. but how? This is so much knowledge and it's simple. It's linear. Right. But it's complicated too. It's not like, okay, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go do this and I'm going to heal people. Because I, I have it's people not that easy, yeah. constantly coming to me and they're like, oh, I trust your advice and you can give me this. And I'm like, guys, my life is kind of like a, I don't know how to help you and I don't know what kind of help you need. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yes. So going back to ancestors, I think it's really important that, uh, because the how is the most challenging question is how do I do this and manage everything I need to do in the space and time I have to do it. I think that you shouldn't have to have the answers to that. Mm. I think that those answers come with time and it also comes with truth mm-hmm. that we get from ourselves. And in that truth, we mm-hmm. find out how. Yeah. You know, but the truth isn't going to come easy. I mean, it's never easy, right? It's just like trying to ask the truth out of a pathological life. Right? <laughs> so, there's no winning. There's no winning. And I think that that's the stuff. challenge is like the more we try to find it, the harder it becomes, right? Yeah. It's like looking for the uh, the serum to everlasting youth, you know? It's just very yeah. difficult. But I think that that's one of those things is if we succumb to it and we allow ourselves just to be, mm-hmm. sometimes we find the answers in that. So sometimes it's mm-hmm. as simple as meditation or just practicing it in small ways. Mm. That's something I've learned is like small practices have not just helped me feel cleansed, but also remind me that I'm on my way to becoming Mm. and that eventually those answers will come to me. I don't Mm. have to go chasing them forever. You know, my ancestors are gently, like I said, nudging me towards that. Mm. And perhaps you might find it the same with yours. Okay, let's get into that favorite poem. Yes. Go ahead. All right, this poem is called... Three generations of Nakanishi women discussing my diagnosis with me. I am still learning how to write this poem. Sometimes I think people know more about me than I do, my family in particular. I can tell by the way each person has talked about me, about my own diagnosis. I call this poem learning about yourself from the perspectives of three generations of Nakanishi women. My grandmother was a shaman. In America, people consider her a paranoid schizophrenic and high-functioning dementia patient, but in ours, she is a seer, a soothsayer, a priestess connecting each generation to the next, wards off demons from whole villages, and feeds magic to its people as if to fill them with love and cleanse them of their suffering. She was the first person to see me as I am. As a child, she will hold me by the hand and walk me through the history of our women, the titles we held, the wars that we faced, and how a mind like mine was meant to embrace more than the average brain could handle. So when I first flew off the handles, I came to her in pieces. She told me, you are not too crazy. You feel everything and that is okay. And I did. 
A scared single parent, ex-con, and drug addict whose only idea of love was toxic at best. I could feel whole worlds in people's souls before they ever said a word. Could fill spaces with my energy before I ever said a word. I learned body language early as a survival method. And I have gotten so goddamn good at it that I've lost a lot of friends. The women in my family have a hard time keeping thoughts to themselves, so when I see people hurt, I ask. When people come at me, I react. When I'm alone with myself, I'm scared as fuck for the reaction I'm asking for. I'm scared to open the door to my mind, knowing the bloody bedrooms are all that I'll remember. There are days I wonder if I'm more than bloody bedrooms and rap sheets, battle wounds and tainted pillow talk. What if questions and paranoid thoughts and those are just in the moments I do something as simple as lose my key. Forget my laptop, don't charge my phone, lose my temper, forget to tell my daughter I love her before I drop her off at school. When you are buried under decades of trauma, it becomes harder to unlearn the silence, to give sorrow any other name than anger, to give shame any other name than my own, to give myself any other name than my ancestors. Growing up in an Asian family means to know war in your bones, to hunger after attention. To be told each mistake is our fault. To understand the undertone of a quiet gaze like my mother, who does not believe in my diagnosis, who thinks that post-traumatic stress disorder is reserved for soldiers, who thinks bipolarism is a made-up word for girls with a backbone, who normalizes things like therapeutic shopping, blackout rage attacks, and repressing emotion until we become all brimstone and pyroclastic. She was raised by the hard hands of war survivors famine and learning neglect as a form of compassion. Under all the years of silent torment, sorrow was a name only afforded to her mother. Even in the psychiatric war, my mother told me I didn't belong there, that this was all in my head. I told her that is the problem, that this is all in my head. I am a hostel full of hostage memories. I am a perpetuator and proprietor of both, and I have been fighting my demons for years. I'm beginning to think that they are not the worst parts of myself, that they are what has held up my spine for so long. Perhaps they are the screaming and my marrows and the whisper and my bones that have reminded me to survive just so that they might not lose the only place they know is home. My daughter, she knows all about monsters. She just doesn't think they hide under the bed, in the closet, or in the dark. During her visit to the clinic I once belonged, she said, Mommy, you have this gray thing around you. I laughed and responded, What? Mockingly. I joked that it could be ghosts or monsters. She replied, I don't think that's what it is. Gray isn't bad, mommy. Gray just means old, like Kachan. Maybe it's her. She laughed. And it never hit me until she left. That perhaps my grandmother hugs me the way my, my demons do my spine. That this is the battle she has prepared me for all along. To look at three generations of Nakanishi women who are all different and the same and having the courage to say, I am hurt. I am scared. I feel like I'm dying inside without any shame. My daughter described it best. A cloud, gray matter, neither black nor white, neither birth nor death. Just a simple existence around me to remind me that I do exist. I am learning not to be afraid of my demons, but just to get to know them instead over cups of coffee and poetry and reflection and to take a deep breath. Remind myself I am but human with generations of women inside my head. To be okay with that. I'm learning to be okay with that.
I'm okay. I am okay. I am okay. Oh God. Oh. Oh, thank you. That poem take that poem took a lot out of me. Anytime I read it, it's one of those things like I can I'll only read it a few times, like in my lifetime probably. I heard it for the first time at Words of Warrior. That was the day I wrote it. I wrote it right before I went up, actually. I was actually writing it, like while we were seated. <laughs> Yeah, I know, that's always the us are rehearsing pieces three weeks out. We're not even trying to win, but... Yeah, that's why I'm like, because I don't go in for competition, so things kind of come a little organically, and I'm like, oh, I was like, you know what? Fuck that other poem, write this poem. <laughs> so, so it was kind of like a really big rant, but it was one of those poems where I was like crying a lot, like on my way there, and I was like, okay, cool. And then, yeah, and that poem just kind of came out like that. Like, and I knew it was going to be over time, too. I was like, F it, I don't even care anymore, because I just need to say this poem. Like, it's on my chest. And then she was like, oh, yeah, like, if it wasn't for timing, you would have won. And I was like, I didn't care about winning, dude. I just wanted to say the poem. I wanted to, like, honor that part of myself that I don't let people see, you know? And it, it meant a lot to me to do that poem. And it means so much that that's a poem that you love, because that was a poem I was very insecure about, was talking about my own vulnerability uh, and my mental health health you know so that's something that was really like thank you so much like thank you for just all of this this space the food the energy the vibes like all of it like just thank you so much this has been such a wonderful time and experience yeah we should do this more often like just i'm game yes yeah i mean yeah with the mic that's cool this is a beautiful mic we need to relax though maybe take in the energies and doses facts yes like tea and kick it like i'm down for that too just like chest chilling no i like winning i hate losing (laughs) see that's why i'm like i'm gonna have to hate you see in my mind i'm like i win in life so like i don't need to win anywhere else because i'm winning there (laughs) no i'm like you win the competitions girl because you be slaying that shit like i don't even like i'm like no chess i board games i hate losing like i'm i don't know how to lose Oh, girl, I'm the worst loser ever. Like, that's why I don't compete, because I'm a sore loser. Like, I'm an asshole. Like, that's why I'm like, oh, like, if I lose in things, I'm like, Tch. I'm like, look at them cheating. Like, I, I, I just automatically say people are cheating when I when I don't win. I'm like, oh, no, it's because they cheated. Like, it's like, it's like such a terrible habit. It's so terrible. Like, it's why I don't play board games. It's like, it's why I don't do that. Like, Monopoly, no, nah. I'm like, everyone cheats. Who's the banker? Like, <laughs> Final thoughts for the audience, for your family, for the people who admire you, for your daughters. I just want to say thank you so much for allowing me to be the person that I'm becoming, giving me the space to grow, and for supporting me. That goes for the audience, for my family, and my daughters. I think my daughters are really the foothold to all the change that I'm becoming. Mm -hmm. My partner, Kama, who has just been an amazing ally, and the fight against myself and my insecurities and my trauma and he's really helped me to grow my children have helped me to grow and to be honest this community poetry 
and writing and artists have helped me to become this person I've always imagined being but never thought I could be. You know, so so just thank you to everybody, really. Thank you for everyone listening to this podcast. Umpo, thank you for hosting this space. And and Michael for this delicious food and being like this awesome accommodating person that he is. Like I just I'm really just so grateful. This is a life I've always wanted and never dreamed of having. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your energy. Eight months pregnant and you're still looking gorgeous. Hey girl. You said you have a cold and you're here. I do. So if I sound like really raspy and like deep voiced, like going through like, you know, transgender, like transitions, like that's just, that's just me in the cold. Um, I just like, I I like to think that's a deep sultry voice, but I know it don't sound like that. (laughs) Oh, thank you, boo boo. And thank you so much for your energy and accommodating the space. Cause I know it can be a lot to take on as an empath and as a spiritualist as well. So thank you. In one of the demonstration stages in South Africa's history, 20,000 women of all races marched to Pretoria's Union buildings on the 9th of August, 1956, to present a petition against the carrying of passes by women to the Prime Minister, J.G. Stradom. The march against the pass laws was organized by the Federation of South African Women. The Federation famously challenged the idea that a woman's place is in the kitchen declaring it instead to be everywhere. What better way to start the show but to inspire women all over the world and not just in South Africa with a woman so intelligent, so phenomenal and so powerful whose story truly, truly has the potential to not only inspire but change lives. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for tuning in. I know it was a long episode, but you guys stuck it out and gave Ashley's story the kind of listening it truly deserves. In the next episode, we have the Viking poet, a spoken word artist, street poet, Olympic weightlifting coach, religious studies major, and mental health advocate. He's the father of two sons, a feminist and an ally. Until then, mahulukwe kiotaba rebuile. Aloha.